you're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. So check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. And so, we're going to continue in that, that theme of We Are Family, and if you have the We Are Family theme song in your head, you're welcome. And I want to talk to you today about encouragement. And I want to do it from Romans 15, 1 through 7. But to get to encouragement, we have to follow the train of thought of Paul and the writing here and his purpose of his writing. And so here is the primary call to action in these verses today. Paul calls the strong in the faith, the strong brothers, to live as bound by the gospel towards one another. He calls them to live as bound by the gospel towards one another. And it will be the unraveling or the unpacking of what it means to be bound to one another that we will then see the source and the purpose of encouragement. So we'll get there, but first things first. And so to, again, kind of come back to the context of the book of Romans, we did this a few weeks back when we were in chapter 12, but to recap that, The book of Romans is a book about the gospel. Right away, the gospel of God. Chapters 1 through 4 talk about how the gospel makes us righteous. doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, equally sinful, equally broken, equally made righteous through Christ. Chapters 5 through 8, the gospel is what makes us a new creation in Christ Jesus. You had the first Adam in Genesis, who was the head over humanity, and we have all sinned because we're all in Adam. And then Jesus comes as the second Adam, and under his headship, we all become a new creation. Chapters 9 through 11, a little bit more complex and deep, talk about how the gospel came through the promises ultimately made to Israel. And then chapters 12 through 15 are more of the practical outworkings of the book of Romans in that Paul is calling the church to be united. And that's really what you see in 12 through 15, this call to being united. And so he calls then both the strong brother and the weak brother to be united in the faith. The strong. The strong are those whose faith in the gospel has secured them to live out what I would say non-gospel violating freedoms. And such as in in the book of Romans, such as eating meat sacrificed to idols. When you live in Rome and you're going to the meat market, the meat before it's butchered up is being offered up to gods. The question is, well, can we eat that as Christians? And the church is saying, The Gentile believers are saying, yeah, because they aren't real gods and we're not actually worshiping them. We're just eating meat because we're hungry. That was one issue. Another one was just observing days as important other than the Sabbath. So you had the strong who were secure in their faith, having uh, their conscience sealed securely with non-gospel violations. The weak are those whose faith in the gospel has not yet secured them to live out these non-sinful freedoms. 
For them, those freedoms still violate their conscience. And while the freedom itself is not sinful, the searing of the weaker brother's conscience would be sinful. For for some in the church in this time, eating that meat would sear their conscience and be sinful for them, so they should not eat that meat. So neither then the faith of the strong nor the practices of the weak violate the gospel. Neither of them are in sin. They're not violating the gospel. But the way that those two behave and interact with one another can either be a violation of or in accordance to the gospel. The way that those two interact with one another either violate the gospel or are in accordance with the gospel. And here, Paul puts more of the responsibility with the strong brother to help lead the way to maturity and unity as a body. Several months back, I was up at the Missouri Baptist annual convention with Dave and and Steve and Adam was there as well. We didn't ride together, but we ate hot dogs together or something. I can't remember what we ate. But we were at the annual convention. And there was, uh, in this time, there was an older brother in the faith uh, who I had not known prior. And he heard about our story. And I talked to him about, we, mentioned, we talked about our church and even down to how we did communion. And he knew that we have both juice and wine at our communion station. And he wanted to, at that moment, he was shut off and he made, uh, made it a point to have a conversation with me that taking wine at the Lord's Supper is unbiblical. And so I was like, okay, well, I am willing to hear what the Bible has to say. And so I listened to him and the man was logical, reasonable in his thoughts. But I said at the end of it, I was like, but still, the Bible isn't saying that. That's just your logic your reasoning. I would have considered this man, maybe still do, weak in the faith because his conscience was telling him that wine was sinful for him. Though, having wine in communion is not a violation of the gospel. It is not a sinful thing. His picking this fight with me was annoying at first because if any of you know me, I have a little bit of an ego And yes, we all have our faults, right? And so I was like, okay, is it time to fight or is it not time to fight, Greg? Work through this quickly. But I decided that I had to ask the question, do I want to divide or do I want to unite? I listened to a pastor say this. He said, there are times to divide, but we tend to divide when we are to unite. And we tend to unite when we're supposed to divide. Back to the church in Rome. Meat sacrificed to idols was not the only concern for the church. There were scruples, qualms, reservations, violations of conscience about how to rightly respond or relate to the government in chapter 13. There were, there were issues about how to apply the law of the Old Testament into modern day life in the gospel, chapters 14, chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. There was debate about the recognition of certain days as more significant than others, chapter 14, verses 5 through 12. In all of the weaknesses of the church, 
Paul then turns in chapter 15 in addressing the strong to be the ones who would set, who would step up and help the church achieve unity. Something that could and should be possessed by the church because of the gospel of Jesus. And the gospel, and Paul fleshes this out more really, is not some intellectualized hope where you just figure it out in your head and it becomes a theory in your head, but it is a possessed hope, something that is tangible and manifested and realized in the family of God. And so I come back to what I said in the beginning of the driving theme here. Paul calls the strong to action, to live as bound by the gospel towards one another, bound by the gospel towards one another. And so let's see that in these verses. We are to be bound by the gospel to not please ourselves. Bound by the gospel to not please ourselves. Verses 1 and 2. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So we're to bear with the failings of the weak. The goal of building up is to help the weak be strengthened in their faith and godliness. Pleasing self or self-advancement is not the goal in the body or for the strong brother, especially pleasing others so that they could advance is beautiful. If bearing with one's scruples or problems no longer becomes good for the weak, then the strong brother must not continue and just refuse him. If the weak brother is refusing to grow and to mature and to listen to the stronger brother, the stronger brother doesn't have to sit there and just constantly give in to the weaker brother and just kind of lay it all down constantly and just give in to their arguments or whatever it is. But if the weaker is not willing then the stronger doesn't have to continue to just give in. The goal is pleasing for the good of the weak, not enabling the weak to be judgmental or controlling. It's not the point. Paul reminded us in 14, verse 15, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. The call, whether whether you are strong or weak, is not to destroy the brother. And so we are bound by the gospel to please our neighbor. These are echoes of what we see all over the Old Testament. You go back to Leviticus 19, even in back in Romans chapter 13. Pleasing neighbor, loving neighbor is the way of the kingdom, is the way of the gospel. Pleasing neighbor then is not Seeking to just please yourself. That means to just satisfy yourself or just make yourself happy. Pleasing self is also not, or pleasing self, what that looks like practically is the strong then dividing or pulling away from the weak so they they don't have to give up their liberties. How can I avoid this brother so that I can do what it is that I want to do? Because being around them is just an annoyance to me. Because I always have to give this thing up. That's not, that's 
pleasing self, not pleasing neighbor. And I please myself when I try to pressure the weak to getting over their weaknesses and coming along my strengths. Pleasing neighbor is when the strong help the weak, not criticize them. Pleasing neighbor is when the strong help the weak with what ultimately oppresses them. Pleasing neighbor is the strong shouldering the burden for the weak, not merely living or live to indulge in their own pleasures. As we move towards encouragement, we're going to have to deal with a sobering question. Are your behaviors one of a stronger or weaker brother? Don't get it twisted. Being strong doesn't mean you're intellectually inclined. You may have it all together in your head, but the question is, does your theology match your life and your life match your theology? Are you one who's always seeking to pick fights or debates or scruples with your brothers and sisters more than you find yourself saying, how can I help please them so that they can live out their faith? Are you looking to help them or are you looking to fight against them? When I look at, this is just me personally speaking here, when I look at the state of the church in general, It seems to be one that is divided when it should be united. I see believers drawing hard lines when there should be no hard lines. I see verbal stones being thrown across the aisle, and it is disturbing. I'm seeing and hearing many say, hey, we're out of here, we're leaving, or we're moving away from another, as though they won't be with that person in eternity. We are out to often please ourselves and I'm having a hard time seeing anyone say why they genuinely love another and how they could work and labor towards pleasing them in order to build them up. It's usually lines of defense. Here's how I can go against them. Here's how I can strike them down. Here's how they're wrong. Here's how I'm right. But what about how can I lay myself down so that I can please them and build them up? If you cannot get to a place of rightly dealing with the weak, you will struggle with the very idea of encouragement. You will struggle because you cannot help but please your own self, your own agenda, your own ideologies. And so we are bound by the gospel to not please ourselves. And next, we are bound by the gospel to carry the burden of the family. We are bound by the gospel to carry the burden of the family. Verse 3. Paul then transitions for Christ did not please himself. He's the ultimate example. Imitate him. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. This goes back to Psalm 69 verse 9. Says this for zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. David is king. He's recognizing that those who have despised God have now despised him. 
David is bearing the reproach of Israel's sin against God. When somebody sins against you, the first one they're sinning against is God. And it has fallen onto David as God's representative of the people of Israel. And we're not just talking about Gentiles here. We're not talking about foreigners. We're talking about the very house, the very people of God, their reproaches coming to God, then falling on David. David was vindicated because it was the people who sinned, not David in this situation. Jesus is the fulfillment of this passage. First, we see Jesus rebuke the Jews for making the temple courts a place of commerce instead of a place of worship, as he had said. That's when he flips the tables and he starts cracking the whip. Zeal for your house has consumed me. And secondly, we see here, just as Paul shows us, that Jesus bears the full reproach of his people Israel that came against God. All sin against God then comes against Jesus is poured out onto him when he dies on the cross. Jesus' death on the cross is the full absorption of God's full wrath against the sins of his people. To the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians in the church of Rome, what that means is all of their sins that they had committed against God have now been put upon Jesus and he was punished for their sins. Why? Because Jesus didn't seek to please himself. And so Jesus was vindicated at a much grander level. He didn't do anything wrong ever, but he took the penalty. Paul is calling the strong brother to take on the reproach of the evil that is against their weak Judeo-Christian brothers by bearing them upon their shoulders for the sake of unity. What do you mean, Pastor Greg? The Jews were hated in Rome. Take Christianity out of the picture even for a moment. Rome hated the Jews. Jews hated Rome. They did not work very well together. And so now, these Jews who have come to faith are still bearing the reproach of society upon them. And so Paul wants the stronger brother to consider the value of carrying the burden of these brothers in the faith, even though they're weak in the faith, even though these mature, stronger brothers have done nothing wrong. Why? So that the weak brother might be built up in the church, unified in the gospel. It's sort of like guilt by association. If these Gentile Christians associate themselves with these Jewish Christians, then they are themselves going to be persecuted by their own Gentile neighbors. We stand as a church upon the shoulders of many saints before us. And I'll just say one that's a trigger word for everybody now. Even the Southern Baptist Convention. like Everybody starts twitching a little bit. And not only Southern Baptists, but even folks at Temple Baptists. 
and every other church, Southern Baptist or otherwise, who has invested time, leadership, dollars, prayer, encouragement, and resources so that we can do what the Lord has called us to do. And like the strong Gentile Christian, we need to remain humble to the fact that we were grafted in, so to speak, by those who have been loving Jesus far longer than we've been alive. Is it worth it to you to be identified with somebody or an entity that seems to have so much scorn for the sake of your brother? Are you willing to endure that scorn and humiliation for the sake of them? Are you more concerned about what the outsiders think? Are you more concerned about what your little tribe within Christianity thinks about you and your associations than what God has to say? Do I hate certain things happening in the SBC without question? Do I hate a lot of the history? Yeah, of course. I'm talking about sinners trying to do perfect, righteous, holy things and always messing it up. Do I hate those things? Yes. But we have to understand while we're never going to compromise the gospel, if any association, entity, denomination, or whatever it is that we're a part of begins to violate the scriptures, we will not be associated with them. But if we're talking about scruples, fights, infighting, things that we should be uniting on, not dividing, we need to come to scripture and allow scripture to drive us then. And not just run away Because we don't like it. And I say this because on a church level, this is going to get real. That's the same call. We will be engaging other churches in this city. Southern Baptist churches, non-denominational churches, whatever, as long as they are biblically sound and gospel-centered churches that may have a bunch of weaker brothers in them. And as we engage... We're going to be a people, Lord willing, who are stronger in the faith, not arrogant in the faith. We will labor bearing whatever reproach we have for the sake of building them up to maturity, bringing them to health, finding the underdog in this city that nobody wants to invest in and investing in them. That's what we're called to do. And when we come to a place of not pleasing ourselves and bearing the reproach of one another, then we're ready to encourage. Encouraging is willingly becoming a burden carrier for the sake of the weak. Third, we are bound by the gospel through the enduring and encouraging word of God. We are bound by the gospel through the enduring and encouraging word of God, verses 4 through 6. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another 
in accord with Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. So we kind of have this parenthetical note here in verse four. Paul just kind of says, hey, I have a little extra thought I need to give you in regards to the strong relating to the weak. The strong living is not some sort of afterthought. It's not some sort of reaction to the gospel. It's not some sort of response to Jesus on the cross. It was a plan that was there all along. For whatever was written in former days, the Old Testament, the Old Testament scriptures was written for our instruction, he says. Peter talks about this a little bit in First Peter. That the prophets were not serving themselves, but you and me. All of the Bible was not some sort of cosmic coincidence, but God with a predetermined plan and purpose resulting in both the news and instruction of our salvation in Christ Jesus through his word to both the Jew and the Gentile. This was the plan all along. Paul uses the same language at the beginning and the end of the book of Romans. Listen to the, the language at the beginning in Romans 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. Bookend. And then he bookends it again in Romans 16, 25 through 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul is saying the scriptures are what bring you two together. And this isn't some afterthought. This is the way it was supposed to always be from eternity past. That through the endurance and encouragement of scripture, you might have hope. Endurance. Endurance here is of God's word. That God's word endures And kind of like we see in chapter 5, verse 4, endurance produces character. Character produces what? Hope. The endurance of God's word is what produces in us a hope that is already ours. This is not our endurance. This is the endurance of God's word. It's producing in us a hope that was already ours from eternity past. The hope of what? The hope of the gospel of Jesus. Encouragement. Some of you might have a translation that says comfort. Encouragement or comfort is of God's word that is revealed in the final vindication of Christ on the cross. And that's what gives us hope. God's word endures so that we would have hope. God's word is revealed in the work of Christ. Giving us hope, assurance of our hope. And so the endurance and encouragement of the scripture are as enduring and encouraging as God himself, because God is the God of endurance and encouragement.
And so God in his word encourages us to have hope. God in his word endures and encourage us, encourages us to have hope. Hope is that confidence or assurance that what God says will happen or has happened. It's not a fingers crossed saying, I hope it happens, but I'm not sure. No, this is assurance that it has happened, it is happening, and it will happen. Jesus returning is not a question mark. It's just a matter of when. And so there's this futuristic hope that Paul is pointing the church to. And it is Christ. Because God's word endured and produced in us the hope of Christ. When we live in that endurance, we also undergo character change. And that character change produces in us hope. The hope, and that hope is what... The strong are to enduringly and encouragingly call the weak too. That's the building up. There's greater things ahead. The hope of you and your weaker brothers is not only that Jesus bore the penalty on the cross, but that he rose from the dead and will return. And when he returns, I want you to get this visual. You will be without question, without hesitation. Dropping in awe at the return of your king, of your God. Hope, faith will be sight. You won't be battling the scruples of meat on the way up to worshiping Jesus. You'll be locked together in this matter. Stronger brother, labor to help your weaker brothers see hope. And that's what it means to encourage, to point them to hope. If the goal, if your goal is infighting and division, then you're not encouraging. You'll never be encouraging. If your goal is pulling unity in the hope of the gospel, then you are being the stronger brother that scripture calls you to be. And that is encouraging. And we are to move towards one another, not away. And moving towards one another, moving one another, excuse me, towards hope then leads to living in harmony. And that's what's next. God in his word endures and encourages us to live in harmony. He uses that word live. Paul shifts what we're understanding of enduring and encouraging from the, just the intellectual sphere, if you will, to now a manifested sphere of living. And that's what Thomas Schreiner says. He says, Paul is Praying these qualities. This is a prayer wish again, like we have seen before. He is praying that these qualities of endurance and encouragement are manifested in the community. To hope. To live in harmony. This idea of living in harmony. Harmony has, you, you hold, means to hold a view or a, an opinion with regard to something. So the strong have their convictions, the weak have their convictions, but the strong have their convictions in regards to unity in the gospel. Harmony then moves them towards the weak, not away. 
And so this other idea of harmony is kind of this combination or of simultaneous sounded musical notes to produce a pleasing effect. So the imagery here is one of unity, not uniformity. Paul calls us like a choir that has so many parts. We were singing earlier when the instrument stopped and we were just singing. That is harmony. That is the beauty of different parts in the choir coming together. And he calls us as the church to be something closer even than a family. The body. What's closer than a body, right? You cannot run from your body. Your legs just can't take off and be like, I'm out of here. Can't do that. Your body must learn to be in harmony with the rest of your body. Is your participation in the body of Christ, both within Redeemer and without, one of harmony or conformity? Harmony understands that there's disagreement but wants to be united. Conformity says, yeah, I won't be with you unless you line up with me exactly. When we try to make others conform, we are not rightly understanding this biblical call to unity or even the biblical idea of what it means to be a stronger brother. And then further, we are not understanding at all this idea of encouragement The gospel calls us to unity in the work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection, not uniformity on the matters of the conscience or opinions. I want you to consider those with whom you disagree, not on the gospel, but on other matters. I want you to consider how maybe they even might ruffle your feathers a little bit. Maybe kind of like the guy who just went to challenge me right away that we didn't even know each other. Do you understand that you actually need them? A strong brother recognizes that. An arrogant brother thinks they can just live without them. A strong brother understands that the weak needs to be encouraged to strength so that their part, their function in the body helps the body of which the stronger brother is a part. And so the strong then must encourage the weak to this sort of harmony and not staying at at arm's length, not just tolerating the weak, I'll just deal with them. No, that's not what it is. And as the strong, we have to posture ourselves as one who can better envision the harmony of the body. Like you, you, know who that weaker brother is or that one you have disagreement with, you have to envision, you have to dream bigger than just the moment and the irritation and the frustration of it. You have to see that you need them because they are in the body and you're not strong enough on your own, no matter how smart or tough or whatever you think you are, you need them because we are all in the body growing into the head, which is Christ. Christ doesn't need to grow. We have to grow. And so God in his word endures and encourages us to have hope, to live in harmony, and third, to rightly worship together. To have hope, to live in harmony, to rightly worship together. Verse 6, that together 
you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here is that beautiful marrying of harmony with worship. One voice. Not two voices. Not five voices. One voice that glorifies God, giving Him praise. Giving praise to God the Father because we were the ones who sinned against Him. He took on our reproach that was then turned to His Son, Jesus And Jesus had to pay the penalty for our sin against God so that we could stand together free from the guilt of sin and truly worship with one unified song. Jesus is not just the object of worship, but he's the Lord of our lives instructing us to these things as difficult as it is, as annoying as people are. And he empowers us as Gideon prayed that I would preach in the power of the spirit. He empowers us with the Holy spirit to do these things. They're not just some sort of philosophical theoretical thing. This is something that we actually possess because of the gospel by the power of the spirit. This is real. And we do this because Jesus did not choose to please himself, but to die for us, the weaker brothers. And so we need to get past the non-gospel violating differences of the conscience. And when we do that, what do we have? A unified song of praise. I'm not saying sweep those things under the rug, press into them, but don't divide over them. Come together. Think about it. I'm right-handed. It's my dominant hand. Many of us are. But think about your dominant hand doing the majority of the burden carrying, if you will. All the work. The other hand is just kind of hanging out. Will be used when needed. But both hands equally raise in harmony at the praise of God. And so that makes us then bound by the gospel to welcome one another. Therefore, verse 7, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And this is the fruit of proper endurance and encouragement. A welcoming spirit Word and attitude towards one another. The warmth and genuine love of the king and his kingdom. And why? Because Christ has welcomed you. It doesn't say because Christ tolerated you. Because Christ put up with you. Because Christ rolled his eyes as he opened the door to let you in. No, it doesn't say that. He welcomed you. A weakened, dead sinner into the kingdom, into his body, not ashamed to be associated with you, not ashamed to call you brother or sister. And he is not ashamed to be the head of this body. And Paul, if we were to keep going on in verse eight, he's just kind of tugging at the Gentile a little bit. Remember, it was God who was, who endured and encouraged 
you by way of his people Israel. God had to endure and encourage you into the faith. Now you get to do it back. (laughs) If you're in Christ church, think of this. How could any of you possibly be divided from anyone else who is also in Christ? To divide is to say that Christ divides from us. If somebody across the aisle who has a difference of opinions, philosophies, methods to whatever it is, and you know you're going to be in heaven with them one day, but you choose to divide from them, what you are theologically declaring to everybody is that Jesus is willing to go away from you. That's inaccurate. That's wrong. He comes and draws you near as annoying and frustrating as you are. Because you're united in the gospel. Not these scruples. So the Gentile Christian is to remember that he stands on the shoulders of people who God chose as a means to serve the nations, the gospel of Jesus. The Jews, some of them were still not getting it. I thought we were, we were the ones, the only ones. No, no, it was never that way. The gospel presented to you was for the nations. And so now these Gentile Christians are to humbly endure and encourage those weaker Jewish Christians so that they too might see the same promises of God. Coming back to the Missouri Baptist Convention, which I go for the candy and all the free giveaways and just the conversations Adam is really good at sitting in the sessions. I cannot do that. So bless you, brother. But going back to that gentleman, talking about taking wine at the Lord's Supper being unbiblical. And so with God, with Dave and Steve as my witnesses, and I hope I'm right, I made it my goal to love and honor that man. Why am I telling you? Am I boasting of myself? No. As I told you before, the natural fleshly inclination is let's bow up and do this. And I thought, like this, I can't do this. If we're going to be a different type of, if I'm going to be a person of love and pulling people together, I can't do this anymore. So I intentionally, I was telling him, I was just sitting there, little pep talks. Greg, yeah, be loving. Greg, be loving. Greg, be loving. You can do it, Greg. As stronger brothers in the faith, and I would even say Dave and Steve are stronger brothers. We saw an opportunity because it wasn't just me and this guy. It was the three of us. We moved towards him in encouragement so that he would ultimately see less the little wine issue that he had and see more of the hope of the gospel and the harmony that we have in the gospel and the beauty in worshiping Jesus together. I was able to see beyond my own ego and come alongside him in genuine love. And I, and I have no doubt, if and when I see this brother again, we're going to hug and we're going to enjoy each other's company. And if he wants to debate, that's up to him. Imagine the Southern Baptist Convention surrendering its ego 
and pastors and individuals repenting of playing the arrogant brother towards one another. Imagine gospel-centered churches, regardless of their denominational affiliation, in this city being able to encourage one another. Imagine if the stronger brothers across the city fought for one another as Christ has fought for you. Imagine what this city would become. Imagine the hope. Imagine the harmony. Imagine the one voice of praise that would be on display for all to see. And so let us be a people who quickly put to practice this call to live as bound by the gospel towards one another so that we might truly encourage one another.